Hi, I'm Jim Martin. Adventure Rider Radio is built on a model of listener support and some ads to make the show work. We keep the ads few so you can enjoy the show, but we need your support. It takes as little as just a couple of dollars a month to join our patron support team. Drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com and click on support. Chris Donaldson grew up in Northern Ireland at a time when bombs were blowing up around his city of Belfast on a somewhat regular basis. When he was old enough, his escape was planned. He would ride his cafe racer styled Motoguzzi motorcycle from there all the way to Australia. But before he got past London, his route was already blocked. And that was sort of the first of many twists in this sort of an Indiana Jones style adventure in which he was all but cut off from the world 40 years ago. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, greenchiliadv.com. I'm Sam It was the end of the 1970s. Bell-bottom pants were on their way out, and I guess the big hair of the 80s was on its way in, pre-internet era. Chris Donaldson rode away from his home in Belfast, Northern Ireland, to steer his way to Australia. But he never made it to Australia. In fact, actually, he hasn't been there still to this day. Instead, his adventure steered him into an adventure that was, well, kind of like what you'd see in Indiana Jones. Hi guys, my name's Chris Donaldson. I'm from Belfast, Northern Ireland, and I work at a number of things, <laughs> uh, from property development to furniture retail. But currently, I've just written a book called "Going the Wrong Way," about a journey I made 40 years ago. Chris, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Sounds like you wear a lot of hats. Well, I think it was just talking about uh, to somebody the other day about one of the lessons I learned from riding a motorbike around the world is one of the lessons was being able to adjust yourself to different uh, situations and uh, change direction whenever whenever the life changes its directions. Um, so yeah, it's probably a good a, a good skill to have I think these days certainly. So you mentioned furniture in there. You mentioned um, property manage, management. Can you talk about that? 
Yeah, after I came back from my journeys, I joined the family furniture business. Um, I worked it out in a number of years and realized that property development would be was more profitable and more uh, cost effective. So we went into ch- to change their furniture shops into properties. Uh, I then developed a, a furniture or a, sorry, a, a fitness business. Um, a little bit like Curves, which you probably have in Canada, in, in Ireland, in the UK. And then I got into mobile apps out in Dubai. We worked out in Dubai for eight years where I lived in a yacht and enjoyed the, the sunshine for a bit. So, yeah, I've had a very versatile, very mixed uh, jobs along the way. You grew up in Belfast, Ireland, in a time when bombs were exploding throughout the city. And you were going to school at the time. Can you talk a little bit about that and what it was like growing up and what it was all about? Well, when we grew up in the middle of the bombings in the 70s, it was all perfectly normal to us because that's all we knew. We didn't realize that there was anything else there. And I think it's probably the strange things about kids is they don't have any experience about anything else. So what you see is is the norm. Uh, so we, we went, as I say, we went to school in the middle of Belfast. We weren't, we were from a middle class area, so we didn't suffer as a lot of kids would have suffered from seeing uh, stuff going outside the front door, but uh, it certainly was a, a peculiar upbringing to have. What 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 is it? What were the bombings about? You want to get into politics? <laughs> no, I, I don't want to get into politics. But just explain it for those that might not remember, might not be aware of it at all. Well, I suppose it goes back to the civil rights movement in the early late sixties around the world. Um, Catholics in Northern Ireland had been getting a hard time from the ruling. Uh, loyalist Protestant politicians. Uh, There was a kickback and then the IRA kicked off with a bombing campaign to try and get the British out. Um, And it peaked around about the late 70s with, you know, multiple bombings around the city to try and terrorise people, Uh, shootings of the police forces and the army. And, of course, the Protestants, paramilitaries would have been fighting back as well. Um, so at one stage it was very lawless. It was three or four hundred people a year getting blown up or shot. I think wow. the death toll after thirty years was well over three or four thousand. Uh, so it was quite quite a dramatic time. Looking back, when you, you, after peace broke out, as we say, um, you realise what a strange place it was to grow up. So it's almost like a civil war. It would have been a very, I would have called it a low-level civil war. Yeah, there were certainly bombings going off in the city centre, indiscriminate shootings. Um, the IRA and the various paramilitaries liked to think they were targeting um, the security forces, but there was lots of uh, innocent people got caught up in the in the middle of it. Well, what was that like? Like, sort of give give me an idea of what it would have been like for you as a kid, say in school. Well, in school, we would have our school was right in the centre of town, so the, the windows would have been taped up with sort of sellotape to stop them blowing in, which was always a bit ineffective because they would have got blown in anyway. But we would have been able to watch smoke rising from bombings in the city centre um, at various times. My parents' family business was not was about half a mile from town from the city centre. Um, they got blown up 
probably dozens of times, really, because furniture shops seem to be high on the target, probably because they would have burnt well. Um, so my father's shop got blown up a number of times. But we were lucky not to have any uh, personal injuries or casualties in the family. So what happens when a bomb goes off here at school? Well, they were doing a bomb scare. We would have called it whether it was a bombing or not. Um, the kids would all have had to go outside to the playground or onto the front lawn while the property got searched. And of course, you would have found that there would be more bomb scare, more bombing scares reported whenever exam times were on. <laughs> uh, the kids realised it's a very easy way to get out of of doing their exams. Um, some kids would have had a harder time. Obviously, you would have had to wear a school uniform, which denoted very awkwardly that you were a Protestant. And if you were having to, cr- to go through a Catholic area, you would have been a target for, you know, for any, any kids. Describe what that's like, being in the classroom, and then you get this alert go off. What, what happens then? Well, sometimes if there's a bomb outside the school, we would be able to watch the bombings, the smoke rising from the, the rooftops. We could hear the, feel the blast coming again through the windows uh, and hear the, hear the crash. So it would have been quite dramatic um, if, if that happened. Other times there would have been a bomb warning, so we would have known there was a bomb nearby. We would have evacuated the school buildings, gone into the playground or the onto the, the, the playing football pitches and waited there. And as I was saying, at times during school exam times, there might be a few extra bomb scares when everybody would have had to get out of the classroom as well. Uh, but we were right in the centre of town, so we would have seen it all. Um some of the kids would have had to walk through. We were in a Protestant school. One of the problems in Northern Ireland is the schools are segregated. You have Protestant schools and Catholic schools. So that would have your school uniform would have made you a target alone. Uh, schools as, as well became targets to extremists as well because they would have seen that was the Catholic kids, Protestant kids, and their parents would have been going to those areas. Oh, wow. So so going to school, as a kid, you'd have to be careful. And then even at school, the, you, I mean, it just seems so weird to have a school as a target. It just... Yeah. Well, religion and nationality are two things which get mixed up all, all around the world. No doubt. Um, at different places. And unfortunately, Northern Ireland is certainly what happens. Yeah, no, um, I'm not saying it's it's unique for Northern Ireland. I'm just trying to get an idea of what it was like for you as a kid. Now, now you've mentioned about um, kids going to the bombing sites and rummaging through the stuff. Yeah, we would have been able to, you know, they would have been roped off, but health and safety was never a big thing in Northern Ireland. So kids would have been able to jump in under the ropes and see what was there. Um, and everybody is always out for a... A, a souvenir or a bargain. I, rem- I remember a, a shopkeeper who had a butcher's shop was amazed one day because the bomb had gone off nearby and the window, front window had come in and all the sausages and steaks and so on in the front window were all covered in broken glass. Um, and he turned around 10 minutes later and they were all gone. <sighs> the local <laughs> the local neighbours had been in and, and taken them all so they were cooking up sausages and broken glass for tea that night, you know. <sighs> So there was various 
It, it's, I oh, mean, we laugh. It's, it's horrible. I mean, you know, it's, and like, like you said, looking back, but at the time you, th- you think it's normal. Now you were going quite a distance. You were, you, I, from what I understand, you were out sort of outside of the air. You had quite a commute to go to school and back. What was that like? Well, three or four, three or four miles. It wouldn't have been an awful long way to Belfast. Not a huge, huge city really. There's only what half a million people. So not so far to go. Um, but other kids would have been more of the fact, not so much the distance you would have had to travel, but if you had to travel through a Catholic area or a Protestant area, no matter what you were, you would then have been a target in that area. Some of the bus routes would have, buses obviously took the direct route to your house, which sometimes would travel through a, an area of the other side. Um, I know the, the British Army would have maps of Belfast uh, Coloured in and different in orange or green, depending on what the religion was in that particular area, you know. So, sectarianism was was rife. People would have got shot for just being a Protestant or a Catholic or being in the wrong area at the wrong time. Not so much kids, but certainly grown-ups. Did you have friends that, that got killed? I had friends, the friends who would have got killed. Yeah, my best friend was shot at one stage in a failed... Um, attack his father was a bank manager so he got shot because they were trying to rob the bank as such so what you would have had with with the paramilitaries with the lawlessness going on you would have had the commoner garden robbers trying to make the best of the bad situation as well by 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 committing thefts and robberies as well so a lot of sense of there was a sense of lawlessness around what did that do for you when your friend got shot well, that was you. At one stage, we would have been ready to join the the army or the paramilitaries on our side. Uh, the trouble with troubles like that, like secretary troubles, the more trouble there is, the more people get shot or get blown up. Uh, it drives people further into their corners to fight back from their side. Extremism creates further extremism, mm. and certainly, I didn't get caught up in it, but I know other ones who did. Um, and it's it's a very normal reaction to somebody you love or your or your friends gets injured, you would want to take their side and fight back. At one point, you decide that you you want to you need to go travel. Before that point, where you decide you need to go travel, did you travel at all? Well, we would have gone away with our parents, uh, caravanning holidays, camping holidays, that sort of thing. We would have gone to France and Switzerland one time. Uh, so that would have been enough to light an amber of, uh, in my imagination, of, of what was outside Northern Ireland. I would have seen that there was a normal life out there, uh, places that weren't cold and grey every every morning, <laughs> uh, and places that didn't have, have a low-level civil war going on, as you say. So it's certainly you see a little bit of what's out there and you want to see more sort of give you a taste. So so at this point, you, you decide that you need to go travel on your motorcycle, of course. What are you hoping to accomplish there and, and, and what's your idea? Well, I mean, it, it's always a question, isn't it? Why do we go traveling on motorbikes? Um, you, it's, they're not the most comfortable ways of traveling. They're not, uh, you know, you can't carry a lot of stuff. You can't sleep on them. They're restrictive in various ways, but they are a tremendous way. They give a tremendous feeling of freedom. And from an early age, I felt that that was the way I wanted to travel. Uh, even though I only had a BSA Bantam at that stage, I still knew I wanted to get away on a motorbike. Uh, 
and travel around the world on it. Never quite worked out why. That's sort of in hindsight, isn't it? Because, I mean, at the time, wouldn't it have just been your transportation? Well, at the time, that was my transportation. That was, in those days, we would have had motorbikes because that was the cheapest way of traveling to school or roundabout. Um, whereas now they've become more of a luxury mode of travel for older people. It's very different. I'm not sure what it's like in Canada, but certainly in the UK, and the, most motorcyclists are, are older people now, whereas in our day, uh, the, you had a motorbike because it was a cheap form of transport. You couldn't afford to have a car. But I never thought of any other way than to travel around the world on a motorbike. It just seemed to be the obvious thing to do. What was your plan? Well, the plan was going to Australia. Um, and that was my plan for many years, since from 16 till I was about to left when I was 21, um, to go to Australia, drive around the world as such, to which is a bit of a figment of your imagination anyway, because you, there's too much water in the way, obviously. But I wanted to drive to India, take the boat to Australia, stay in Australia, go to the States, drive across the States and, and circle the world that way. Um, I left in 1979. I got delayed with various things. And by the time I left, I got as far as London. It was the end of end of October. And the Iranian revolution kicked off when I was in London, just about to leave, which effectively blocked the road to Australia. And hence, the book's called Going the Wrong Way because I ended up going everywhere apart from Australia. You've written this book, Going the Wrong Way, as you mentioned, 40 years later, I guess. Why now? Well, I actually started writing the book 40 years ago and took a lot of notes when I was traveling, realizing this is quite a unique experience. Um, as far as I was aware, nobody had ever done this before. I was 21. I didn't have much experience, but uh, I started writing a book. When I got back, I continued, took some lessons and uh, then one day somebody handed me a book called Jupiter's Travels from a guy written by Ted Simon. He's done what I'd done, um, only gone further longer. And he was a 45-year-old journalist and written a book that I could never have written. So I packed all my notes in the bag and promptly forgot about them. I thought, that's the end of that. I'm never going to, nobody's going to be interested in my story anymore. <laughs> so uh, blame it on Ted Simon. <laughs> blame it. I did very much did blame it on Ted Simon. I've made a few rude comments about him, I can tell you. But I met him, funny enough, ironically, I met him last year and went down, he's a, lived in the south of France and went down and spent a weekend with him. And we had a lovely uh, weekend talking about places we'd been and seen and so on. And he helped me with... Uh, putting the final stages of my book together. Lovely guy. But I couldn't believe it whenever I found out that he'd done what I'd done and, and in a way that I didn't think I could could better. Um, the reason I got around to finishing the book last year was probably more to do with Ewan McGregor. I guess I read a number of his books. And whereas he's great accomplishment what he'd done he, to me he'd very much miss, very much missed the point of traveling on a motorbike which is the fact that you're on your own you're discovering things on your own you're self-supporting um and to do it with a, a couple of trucks behind you with all your spare parts sort of defeats the object to me a little bit um so i decided i, I wanted to tell the story of what it was like 40 years ago whenever i did it 
And one thing that you've mentioned in your book is that you were sort of aware, and I'm not sure if it was at the time or is this in hindsight, you were sort of aware that that was, you're you're probably like the last generation to travel um, where you're cut off from the world, where you go out because of the lack of the internet. I say lack of because the internet wasn't invented yet. You were cut off from the world. There were times where you went long periods virtually or literally rather unable to connect with your parents or anyone back home. That's right. I mean, in those days, it was it was possible to. I mean, I remember in Cairo, I spent a day trying to get a telephone, picking your telephone in the in the post office to phone home. It cost for sort of five or ten pounds, probably about fifty quid these days, to make a five minute call home. So it's difficult to do. It's very expensive and very cumbersome. And I wouldn't have had another opportunity to do that for another two, three thousand miles till I was in Kenya. So, yes, different times. Uh, of course, those days we didn't realize that things were changing as such, but we were probably the last, that generation was the last people to do what the old explorers of old had done. And once you were away, you were away, nobody heard of you for, for months or years in those, in the Victorian days. Um, so, yeah, whether it's better or worse these days, nobody's more than a five minutes away from a mobile phone or a, uh, GPS or a booking.com hotel. It's a very different way of traveling the world now, for better or worse. Yeah, I'm not sure is it's, uh, it's, it's better or worse. It really, it's just a matter of that it's different and those times are gone. You know, you, you yeah. never, you can't go back to that. You can't go back to um, not being able to connect. You can purposely disconnect, but you can't go back to not being able to connect. And I, and I think that certainly makes a different trip as as you um, talk about in this book. Now, I had asked you about your original plan to go on this trip. Your original plan was to go around the world or was it just to go to Australia? Well, it would have been to go around the world. Australia was the first part of it. Uh, I had a, a, a hankering to go to Australia and the States, of course, as well, to come around that way. Irish people have um, friends and relations all over the world generally. We populated an awful lot of it. Um, so I'd play people to see in Australia, people to see in the States. Um, I had no interest in going to South America or South Africa uh, and all my planning and all my route maps and guidebooks and everything had been to go around through Asia to Australia. Um, the plan would have been to get a job there and go further on. I was very young. I was only 21 at the time, which from talking to, I didn't realize I was very young at the time, of course, because when you're 21, you think you know everything and <laughs> you're all grown up. Um, so, but looking back now, it's clear to me how young I was and how inexperienced. Um, and I think that's, probably what makes my story different is is that age it's more of a coming of age story and I can look back and see what I did and and luckily uh, as it happened that I had written my journals and written my notes to write the book but not finished it I was able to go back and look at what I was thinking and how I viewed life as a 21 year old so I think it it does give me a unique uh, perspective of what I was like in those days and what life was like in those days what was the point? What were you planning? To, I mean, what was the idea of riding around the world? What was it going to accomplish for you? Pure excitement, just pure excitement, just for a good time. I don't think it was any deep, 
way, you know, 99.9% of your journeys are made to go somewhere and that's your purpose for the journey. Uh, whereas at that stage I realized, well, actually I was just traveling for the sake of traveling to learn what was going on around the world, to see different places and to obviously learn something about myself too. But uh, I was more of a nomadic trip at that stage rather than a definite journey to go somewhere because I had no idea if I was going to get to Australia going down through Africa. What was the significance of uh, going to Israel? How, how does that play out for you as you move along? Well, as I say, it was it was done at a heat. There was no deep significance at all. Not um, no, but there is for having I mean, that stamp in your passport, though. Oh, it was sort of that way. Yes. Well, in my innocence, again, we didn't realize the hostility between the Arabs and the uh, and Israel. So, having a Israeli stamp in your passport meant you couldn't go anywhere else in the Middle East. So we were smart enough to. Uh, Get you could get your stamp put on a piece of paper which you could then take out. Um, but at one scary moment in Syria, when I got stopped by a checkpoint and they found my camera, um, and they said, Oh, well, what's going on here? They weren't used to tourists, so they assumed I must be a spy because I had a camera. So I practically negotiated my way that, Well, that's not the case, I'm just a tourist. They said, Well, we'll develop your film and see what's in your film. And at that stage, I suddenly remembered that I'd actually, a week before, I'd been in an army camp in Israel looking over the Golan Heights. Mm. And if I remember correctly, in your book, you, you were sort of cocky at that point. You were feeling pretty good about yourself until they said something about developing that film. Then all of a sudden, your heart sunk. Suddenly realized, hang on, this is not a good thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's amazing how quickly your life can change in front of your eyes whenever you suddenly realize, you know, you should, should have put, put a bit more thought into this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But again, this is the innocence of a... If I was doing the trip now, I would have known that you shouldn't do that sort of thing. You should make sure that you haven't got any papers. You shouldn't have any uh, damning evidence in your being that you would go into another country. But I was much more ha happy-go-lucky in those days. And you just went on and tried to see, to see what would happen. Well, ignorance is bliss, isn't it? Uh, you know, <laughs> it, it's true though, I mean, because the thing is, if you go now, you know enough to know better and then you get scared because you know what the, what the repercussions will be. Well, ignorance is bliss until the guy sort of standing around with a machine gun saying, what's in your camera? Because we hate Israelis and we've got, better make sure you haven't been there. So yeah, it was a bit of a scary moment that certainly. Now, what about, you, you end up in Africa, you, you didn't have any plans on going there, but you end up going through Africa. Um, your plan at that point is still to ride around the world? Well, I had a loose plan to go to, looking at a map, if I got to Kenya, I could take a boat from Mombasa to, uh, to India and drive across that way. So that was a fairly loose plan at that stage. Um, we got to Suez, uh, and drove across to Cairo, uh, arrived in Cairo in the middle of the night and somehow bluffed our way into the pyramids complex in Giza. And we woke up, spent a week then park camping beside the, the pyramids in Giza, which is again, ignorance is bliss. And that, that's ability to end up there was give us a unique experience. We were on our own with a crowd of our Dutch guys, I think they were, um, in the most sort of unique campsite in the world. I was there 
five or six years ago, and it's like uh, Disneyland now. The pyramids, there's so many people and stalls and tourists. Um, you, it's, it's more of a uh, plastic attraction rather than when I'm thinking back to whenever I was there. Um, so it was quite an experience par- parked up there. Um, after it got to Cairo, we drove south to Aswan to Lake Nasser, took a boat across and uh, arrived in Sudan where the plan was to take a train down to, um, well, it looked like a train line would going down to Khartoum and then a boat to Kenya. But I didn't have a map that went that far, so I had actually no idea what went further south. So it really was traveling just for the sake of traveling. It sounds completely ridiculous now that anybody would, well, as you say, it's not possible to do that now because five minutes on a on a computer, you can see exactly what's everywhere. But uh, we really were. It really was just traveling for the sake of traveling, without a notion of what was down the road. And you, as you said, you're riding a Motoguzzi Le Mans, which is a street bike, and, and you can see photographs of it in your in your book. Um, it's an unlikely bike, I think, for most people to think of riding Africa with. Um, you've got it equipped with, you know, all your bags on there, of course, and and a tape deck, I might add, a cassette deck yeah. <laughs> mounted on it. Well, so it's you 21. Can you, don't go anywhere, you don't go anywhere without your music no, when you're 21. You of know? course not. But you took this thing, you, you did a desert crawl. I mean, you had all, a bunch of adventures on here and some of them I'd, I'd like to get out of you, but uh, you, you did a desert crossing that was a, a bit of a nightmare. Now, w- w- how does that start? Well, we got to the Sydney's, the Nubian Desert, to a place called Wadi Halfa. When you look at the map, it's the the main entrance into crossing the desert on the on the eastern side. So it's you would think it's a quite a cosmopolitan spot, but really it's just a a dirt tract, or was anyway, a dirt tract, um, little mud hut town. Which, if you're looking at the map, where Sudan is, uh, right on the Nile. The Nile goes through the Sydney's desert down to Khartoum. Um, so it's the first port of call in Sudan. After that, there is a railway line of sorts which goes to Khartoum, but the train only went once a week. So we missed the train and casually decided, well, we may as well drive. Uh, because on the map that I had, it looked like there was a track there. And again, in my instance, thinking, well, a track, okay, it's a track. It's going to be bumpy, but we'll be able to make it fine. What we didn't realize is that in Sudan, a track is merely the distance, the direction you would travel to get somewhere. It doesn't mean that there's any sort of road or prepared surface to travel on. So you'd originally planned to take the train. The train You missed the train. You've got a week wait. And instead of waiting that week, you're going to yeah. head out. And you end up connecting with others to do this trip. Yeah. Well, as you say, if you can imagine this place, it's like a dark uh, mud hut village in the middle of nowhere and the thought of spending a week there was horrific so I thought well let's just drive so there was myself a Canadian couple funny enough in a, a Datsun Cherry if you remember what they were a little four-seater uh, front-wheel drive Datsun uh, and a couple of Volkswagen combis so we decided we'd drive across the desert there was also a guy, an English guy in a Land Rover so we formed up a convoy to drive across the desert um, and we got about 300 yards before we got stuck. That's a bit of an unlikely convoy. You mentioned there that you've got a Land Rover, you've got a, a couple of Volkswagen combis, which I, I don't know, even know what they are. I assume they're like camper vans, are they? 
camper vans. Yeah, yeah so you can come Volkswagen camper vans and some sort of front wheel drive car and a and a Moto Guzzi Le Mans. Like <laughs> this almost sounds like one of those movies. <laughs> it does a bit, yeah. <laughs> Only nobody would believe it if they saw it on a movie. Nobody would believe anybody. <laughs> well, they think would it's be too ridiculous. Stupid. Like, come oh, on, this, what are you talking about? This is nobody, too will, nobody will fall for that. <laughs> yeah. So as you say, you wouldn't plan to do it, but because the thought of sitting there for a week waiting for a train was too much, we thought we'll drive across. Um, so we headed off, um, got a few hundred yards and sank up to our axles, um, realized then we had to let our tires down and get 10 pounds a square to flatten the tires off and just decided we'll make our way. Funny if the dots and small dots and uh, Nissan, as they call now, was quite effective. It's a very light car with front wheel drive. It was able to drag itself through the sand reasonably well. The combis were a bit of a disaster, and one of them uh, broke down, and we had to leave it back. Uh, didn't make it. Um, the other one made it, but got so badly damaged when they got to Khartoum, they basically had to abandon it. Um, so the Monogazi Le Mans actually performed very well. The engine on Motoguzzi, it's, you know, it's a shaft drive, big, strong engine. Um, it survived the, the crossing very well. Everything else got, got hammered, the suspension, the wheels, the tires. <laughs> it's a bike that had a hard time. What's so tough about it? Like, like obviously the sand would be tough, but but the, the vehicles are getting beaten. Well, yeah, the sand's tough. You've got, you've got uh, you're sinking into the sand. It's a very rough surface. You've... The, sand, the desert's not just sand. You'd also get areas with like a gravel surface, which you would have very sharp shards of stone sticking up from a gravel surface as well, so which would rip your tires. Um, the heat, the not being able to carry water. Again, uh, reading back in my notes, I uh, can't quite realize how crazy I was because one fall, if it didn't break the bike, it could have broken broken myself. There was no medical, facility, medical facilities for hundreds of miles around. A couple of days we would have driven all day and maybe covered 50 miles. Hmm. Um, so very rough so, terrain and you also had to go through dry riverbeds. Can, can you just explain what that is? A dry riverbed is like called a wadi, which is basically an, an area of very soft sand, which would fill with water maybe once every 10 years uh, and then it would dry out and the sand would be indefinitely deep. So you would just... You couldn't drive over it slowly. The only way to drive over it would be at speed because you would then take on a sort of surfing type motion over it. Um, a surfing? Is that what you said? Yeah. Surfing, right? Surfing. So you, you're going over as fast as you can. You see the guys in the Paris Dakar doing it, especially build bikes. Um, if they slow down too much to sink in, if you go too fast, well, you're going too fast and you'll take off. Um so the motor goes on say it's not the optimum by motorbike to, to cross the desert in. No. Luckily, I'd done a little bit of dirt track stuff before I left. So I was able to, so I knew a little bit of what I was doing. But that makes sense why they're getting beaten so bad because you're, you're going through all the hard stuff with the sharp rocks. You're going over, yeah. over washboard and places and you're going through these wadis, which are so deep, everybody's getting stuck and you're having to, to pull them out. And I then imagine you'd be digging them out, you'd be yeah. uh, pushing and shoving. I can just imagine. So it was a, it was a very, it, was, it took a week to cover three or 400 miles. Um, and then the train, I think it was over a week because the train actually beat us. The train got the first time before we did, but it was a great experience. Um, and again, talking talking about uh, 
I was at a motorbike show last year and there's a couple of guys that done driving down Africa in a in a a scooter of all things. And whenever I asked them about the desert, well there's actually a road now built across it, so you you can't actually even do what we did then. Oh you can, but you've got a two lane highway to cover. Right. It's so disappointing. It's funny Sam Manicom was just saying on our Raw show how uh, he's disappointed that a lot of those good roads that he's he uh, had trouble on, he got injured and broke 17 bones, have been paved over now. <laughs> yeah. It's just a shame, isn't it? <laughs> Take the adventure out of that. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, times are changing. I mean, you can always drive beside the road, but it sort of defeats the object yeah. whenever there's a perfectly good road there to travel across. That's true. I saw a picture of some motorbike magazine recently about somebody fording a river on their motorbike and in the distance you could see there was a bridge over the river anyway so you have to think well, what was the point of that guys <laughs> well you made it through the desert but it was very stressful because your companion somebody really got very upset and and sort of panicked i guess uh, about the whole situation that's right there's the guys in the and uh, the um, <laughs> the dots the dots started to disintegrate the bottom was getting pushed up as it hit rocks so they the area that they could sit in in the car, their heads were starting to hit the ceiling. The floor is being punched up and pushing the seats higher and higher in the pushing car. Pushing the seats higher and higher. The bumpers fell off, the door handles fell off, the windows fell out. <laughs> it was like, do you remember wacky races that everything would fall off the machine when you're driving <laughs> along? But the, the car kept going. Um, so it was very stressful, yeah. For one particular couple, they, they cracked up a bit. Luckily, we were able to get them to the nearest town and they were relaxed again. Um, kept going. Uh, we were following the Nile for most of it, so we were drinking the water from the Nile, which wasn't very clean. Uh, so you were always in danger of getting sick. I got chased by a pack of wild dogs at one stage, which was fairly scary because the dogs could run about 20 miles an hour, whereas I could only drive at about 15 miles an hour with any degree of competency. So I had to drive at 20 with these dogs chasing after me. Knowing that it fell off, that it would just be ripped to pieces by the dogs if it didn't die in the crash, you know. So because they're they're vicious, uh, obviously. They're I mean, these are wild animals. They're mm-hmm. not quite dingoes or whatever. They're African wild dogs, but certainly they would rip you to pieces. So that was quite a quite a scary day too. take a quick break to uh, tell you about a couple of things but stay with us because we've got a lot more to talk about there's a lot more coming up it was around the world two up on a ktm 640 adventure and a broken wrist that was the catalyst for the atlas throttle lock heidi and david winters were, were frustrated with the lock they had so when they returned from the adventure they did some research to find a better solution but david said they couldn't find anything that really did the job well and i have to admit that's kind of my experience as well um, i've had several versions of throttle locks over the years and i kind of resigned myself to the fact that well they're you know they're not perfect they're not they're not that great at all That was until I met David and Heidi at a show in Vancouver, Canada, at a motorcycle show. So fast forward to today, I now have the Atlas Throttle Lock on my bike and it works like a dream. Well, it should because it was David and Heidi's dream to make the most versatile throttle lock and they really pulled it off. The thing is a work of art. It's a a full mechanism in an ultra-thin housing that clamps onto almost any bike. There's only two versions of it, so I mean you can move it from bike to bike. 
and it works as if it was as if it were a factory option. It's got a push button on, a push button off, positive clicks, and it's infinitely adjustable without disengaging the throttle lock. So you get to your speed and you set your throttle lock just by pushing that button. It holds it on. And if you need to adjust it, either add some throttle, take some throttle off, you do it without disengaging it. And then to disengage, you just press that button and it clicks off is a beautiful piece of equipment. The Atlas Throttle Lock is at atlasthrottlelock.com. Throw in there that you heard the Mid-Adventure Rider Radio, of course, atlasthrottlelock.com. See and be seen is what Cyclops Adventure Sports is all about. Cyclops makes auxiliary lighting for motorcycles as well as LED conversion kits for headlights. Um, A bunch of things, actually. Cyclops is owned and run by a family of motorcyclists, so they get what we're all about. And they're high tech. For instance, they have a, a CAN bus interface for BMWs, plug and play. The Raider BMW CAN bus interface plugs directly into the CAN bus system. Like I said, plug and play, no programming. You can add a heated jacket or other accessories, and you can do all kinds of things like set your brake lights to flash, um, all, all with dip switches, no programming. Uh, you don't have to plug it into a computer or anything. You can set your auxiliary lights to strobe when you hit the horn. You can use the wonder wheel and your handlebar to adjust the brightness of your auxiliary lights. Your turn signals can automatically dim an auxiliary light on that side, you know, like cars do. So really incredible system. Cyclops Raider BMW CAN bus interface. And on my bike, I've got their, um, their two-inch Aurora auxiliary lights, which are... Um, fairly small lights, but they're 19 watts and they punch a hole through the darkness like a spotlight, like a huge spotlight. It has everything to do with the design of the reflector and the light, not just the LED bulb itself. Nothing beats great lighting. It makes you obvious on the road what you have to do to be seen, but it also illuminates those dim days or, or nighttime riding. CyclopsAdventureSports.com is the website. Have a look what they've got, and don't forget to throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. CyclopsAdventureSports.com. You've probably heard our Rider Skills segments on Adventure Rider Radio, where we have top rider trainers from around the world teach us skills and give us lessons on riding tips and things like that. And you've no doubt heard them talk about using foot pegs to steer or foot pegs to balance and foot pegs to control your bike in general. In fact, they're your main connection between you and your bike, your foot pegs. Your handlebars are not used for holding on. You should have a light grip on them which puts almost all the emphasis on your foot pegs, obviously, when you're standing. Factory pegs are, well, they're kind of meant to be changed. If you want to seriously control your bike, look at IMS Products foot pegs. IMS Products has a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs, all made with 17.4 cast certified stainless steel, all with certified heat treating, which is a homogenizing and annealing process, all built in the USA and all warranted for life. IMS is owned, designed, and tested by riders and racers. IMSproducts.com. Tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. You ended up at one point um, having trouble finding fuel. Obviously, things were different back then. And you ended up putting your bike on a truck with a bunch of other people. You'd met some other travelers all all went on these trucks. Can you tell that story? Yeah, I got to the site, the sedan. Now, sedan's a huge petrol exporter now, but in those days, nobody knew they had any petrol. So I had to drive 600-odd miles between petrol stations on a dirt road. So I had to pack two or three, two or three jerry cans in the back of the bike. Uh, on a dirt road, took another week 
hard driving and then I got to a place called Juba, which was um, the regional capital who again had no petrol. So I put the back, bike in the back of a truck to drive through uh, to Kenya. Uganda just got rid of Idi Amin in those days. I don't know if you remember who Idi Amin was, but it was a pretty despotic dictatorship. They used to throw anybody who didn't like the crocodiles. Um, he left a couple of months before we got there. But there was a civil war of sorts going on. Um, we thought we, I thought we'd be safe enough in the truck because there's a few other guys in the, the truck, the Africans reckoned they would drive through in a day that they would be given safe passage. It's a convoy of two trucks, um, from what I remember. Convoy carrying, of two trucks, carrying yeah. bags and everything. And then you've got some Americans with yeah. you. You're, you've got yourself, your bike. So my bike and the uh, the African drivers. And so the truck broke down in the north of Uganda, uh, which was totally um, soldiers. It was burnt out villages. There's tanks, burnt out tanks on the side of the road. It was as if the war finished the day before. Um, but a total air of lawlessness in the town. And the truck broke down and everybody piled onto the other truck, leaving me with the motorbike and about 10 miles worth of petrol in the, in the tank, which was enough to get me to the next sort of small town, which unbelievably for that place, that time had petrol because the Tanzanian army had just been through and they'd stolen all their cars. So luckily for me, they had petrol because of no cars. Um, so I made it to Kampala, which was... Again, as I say, fairly lawless. The hotels were all shut. Um, I ended up staying at the police station as a guest because it was the only safe place to, to stay. Uh, so I was camping in some of the, the old assistant commissioner's office for a few days. So um, Uganda at that stage was a beautiful country, but it could totally ruined by the by the, by Eddie Amin who'd, who'd stripped the place. So it's quite an experience. Now, when you 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 sort of skipped over the part in the truck because you were you were traveling with these other people, when the one truck breaks down, as you said, you're you're dumped off. They're saying basically they just left you there and said you're on your own. And you turn to the yeah. the people, the other travelers, these fellow travelers in the back, and and you're saying, hey, you know, can you do something for me? And that didn't work out. Yeah. Well, they asked them to help as well because um, there's no room in the truck for the motorbike. There's only enough room for the for the people, so I had to make a a decision: should I leave the motorbike in this war torn area and go to safety on the back of the truck, or should I stay with my motorbike and take my chances with with what's going on in the country? Um, and with only a couple of liters of fuel, and a couple of liters of fuel. So quite unbelievably, I decided to stay with the motorbike. <laughs> <laughs> again you would only do when you were 21 um this is the only thing i owned in the world you know this is my 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 mother goes to my pride and joy don't expect me to leave it here so um yeah you when you're traveling on your own you seem to go from the unlucky things happen unlucky things happen as i say you were unlucky you got unlucky for a number of times you run out of petrol you get stuck somewhere like that and then all of a sudden you arrive at a town and they've got all the petrol that you need. Friendly people looking, you go to the police station and they take you in and look after you. Um, I remember one night we went to a party with the police through the darkened streets to the YMCA, had a, a party on. 
and walking back again and that evening with gunshots going off in the middle of the night, which is crazy times. Mm. You, um, you, had a, you had multiple problems with your bike, of course, as, as is expected, but you made some sort of rope suspension. Can you, can you tell that? Yeah. <laughs> um, the shock absorber system on the, on the Guzzi, it's like a, it's a spring with a plunger in the middle of it, like those shock absorbers inside the, uh, the, uh, the fork tubes. And when the, due to the hammering that it had, basically the, the springs would pop the shock absorbers out of the, the plungers out of the tubes. So the front suspension would lock up. And the only thing that actually stopped the front wheel from coming off was the, the brake lines going to the brakes, which isn't a terribly safe system. So the forks are coming apart at, at this point. So I mean, the, you've got a street bike and you're riding it basically off-road. Yeah. Basically, I mean, at one stage we were driving, I must have driven at 100 miles down a railway line because through the desert the sand was so soft, we would have crossed, just sat on the railway line dri- driving along the sleepers. On the on the railway ties is what we call them, as railway ties, and so we're talking like big, huge bumps one after the other. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the thing got, got a heavy, hard time. Uh, so I got stuck really, every time, every sort of five miles I had to take apart my suspension to, to get the thing to move again because we got the whole thing jammed up inside the shock, inside the forks. So I ended up take, grabbing a rope off a guy and using that to build a, a stop system to stop the shocks bottoming out. I thought, this is crazy. This has never worked, but it actually worked remarkably well and I used that for the rest of the trip. Like the, the entire rest of the trip that stayed there. Yeah. Well, they did get new shockers over in, in South Africa, but I kept my, my fail-safe length of rope just to <laughs> keep it whenever, whenever all else fails have a rope I think we have duct tape now for this sort of thing duct tape probably hadn't been invented then. oh no you mean to say you du- travelled without duct tape I didn't even think that was possible <laughs> duct tape cures everything <laughs> duct tape and a mole grip you don't need anything else really do you <laughs> You, we're, we're jumping over tons. There's, there's so much adventure in this book, so many different things that happen to you. But um, you, you find yourself in South Africa. I want to go to there. And you end up getting getting connected with a, a yacht or a sailboat race. How does that happen? Yeah, well, that's, I suppose, it's something similar to what we're saying about luck, but I've always wondered about all my life as well, how some people can be lucky and how some people can be unlucky. I do tend to think of myself as a lucky guy. And I suppose I think that because there's various scrapes I've got into and I've been able to get out of them again. But I think luck is, a, it's also a state of mind. If you're a negative person, you'll have bad luck. If you're a positive person, you have good luck. Um, but I got to Cape Town, which was a dead end. Apartheid was still in full flow in those sta- at that stage. So uh, South Africa was pretty much cut off from the rest of the world. Um I couldn't get a flight out. I was going to have to sell the bike. And again, that was going to be the end of the, the trip. I was running out of money. Uh, yeah, at this point, so you're thinking you're going to head home because you, you only left with how much money? It was about a thousand pounds I had, which is, I worked out the other day, it was roughly 4,000 pounds in today's money, which is what, 6,000 American dollars, 5,000 American dollars. Chris, that's not enough, not enough to do your adventure. <laughs> I hate to no. tell you this. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It would have been enough to get me to Australia for, I reckon I'd get to Australia in four or five months. Uh, so it would have been tight, but I would have got there okay with that. But it was nearly all gone by the time I got to South Africa. Uh, I wasn't going to get to Australia because I didn't have enough money. 
Uh, didn't know where to go. Didn't know what it was. Couldn't get a job there because as a white guy, you couldn't get a job doing menial work. Um, it was a very peculiar place. But keeping an eye on the paper, I noticed there was a yacht race came in and thinking of chance my luck at that, I went down to see them and somebody had hurt their, injured their leg um, the day before. So I was able to talk my way onto the boat to get a, a place on this yacht race. So, so hang on, you're reading the paper and you spot a yacht race and you somehow yeah. get the idea because this is racing back to the UK. Is that what it is? Yeah. So, so you, you go down and you actually think that you're going to get on a racing yacht. Well, why would they take you? Well, I didn't care where they went as long as they got out of South Africa, I suppose. Um, again, you, you, you just, you're open to any, at that stage, you had, been trying to get out on boats. I've been trying to get out and uh, think of selling a bike or if anybody was driving back up. So you really are at that stage. It was any way I could get out at all because there's no way I could stay there and there was no route back. So it was pretty much a last resort. I'd done a bit of sitting in Ireland in dinghies. So it was really, let's go down and ask and see if there's a place on a boat. It seems so ridiculous these days because, you know, these Volvo ocean races, Guys train for a year to get a place in a boat like out now. You know, they're mm-hmm. it's big money. It's like Formula One racing. They're, you don't just jump into a car. You know, you don't just jump onto a boat. You're a huge experienced sailor to do something like that. But as you say, I walked down to the docks and said, any chance of a place in the boat? And the guy says, yeah, um, I think we can fit you on. Have you had any experience? But but that wasn't the first boat because even you did run into a little bit of problem there. I mean, they did sort of snub their nose at you a little bit uh, to begin with. That's right. Well, the first boat I went into was a British boat. Um, so he uh, he wanted me to pay to to, to get back, um, which I didn't have enough money for. Um, second boat was an Australian boat. So I got talking to the guys and they accepted me as part of the crew. But I had never sailed a boat before, so I went around to the sailing club that the next day and there was a boat race across the bay. So it was the first... Uh, time had been on a, a keelboat was the day before I left. Hang on, you just said you hadn't sailed a sailboat before? I sailed dinghies. <laughs> so you, dinghies. you you conned these people into getting onto <laughs> the boat, like obviously just, saying that you knew what you were doing. I wouldn't say I called them, I exaggerated oh, a little whatever. bit. Okay. So let's use a different word. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, Ironically, I did say to the guy, you know, halfway into the trip, the captain, I said, you know, were you not worried about having somebody on the ship who couldn't, on the boat who couldn't sail? It's no experience of, of keelboat sailing. And he said, well, not really. So I just thought I'd, it's the sort of thing you can learn along the way. What they were more concerned about was the psychological aspect of somebody who's been traveling on their own for six months, being part of a crew with eight people stuck in a very small space living mm. and working and sleeping in a very small space for for five weeks so it's actually the psychological aspect was a harder bit because whereas you can learn to pull ropes and to do the mechanical things that need done on a boat um living in a small space like that going through storms going through periods of becoming the heat and different uh, things that can happen on a boat it's more of a psychological test than a physical test Right. They don't want somebody who's going to flip their biscuit because this boat was, I mean, they can get anybody to haul uh, lines 
Um, but um, the the boat that you were on in particular was was quite narrow. It was it was specifically yeah. made for ra- racing, so not a lot of room to move around. And I, I think you even said in your book, you said that uh, the first thing they do is tell you to you know pull a, pull a halyard, and, and you're looking at all these lines there and no idea what what they want. What's a halyard? You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a tremendous experience, and people would pay thousands of pounds to have that experience. Uh, whereas as luck would have it, I was able to be there at the right time right day, right place to get, I got on well with the guys and he obviously assessed me enough that he thought I would be able to, to stand the rigors of the boat. Well, the boat trip um, was incredible, you know, in itself, you had so many things go on with the boat, but what happened to your bike? So you're on a boat now and where's your motorcycle? Well, the motor, the boat was sponsored by a company called Nedloid or a shipping company. So I went down to see if I could get the bike ship back with them. And the guy was very good. He said, well, yeah, we can ship it. We can ship it wherever you want. So the first question was Australia, but it didn't go to, it didn't have any ships going to Australia, but they did have one going to Los Angeles. So I said, we'll stick it on there. So you, you, they're um, shipping it for free for you? For free, yeah. Oh, so you can't pass so it So basically it was, they would ship it practically anywhere in the world for free. It would take three months to get to Los Angeles. And I thought, well, I should be able to get back to the UK and get over to Los Angeles to pick it up there. So again, there's no planning, no... I could have been going anywhere. Los Angeles seems as good a place to go as anywhere. We we skipped over the whole boat thing, and I know that there's yeah. there's some storms you went through, and I know at one point the boat lost its rudder, and you guys managed to learn to to, to make this thing sail without the rudder, which is it's a great story. I'm going to leave that for uh, listeners to to read in your book. But you've come back to the UK now. Your parents, who have this furniture business, are fully expecting you to now, okay, you've done your you know, wild thing. You've went out and, and been crazy. Now you're going to come home and be responsible. And and I think your mum was sort of on you about that. Yeah, well, we're both a bit shocked whenever I arrived back. And as you say, thinking that I was going to get back to work, working in the family business. And I was informed that I was actually now going to go to America to drive around in America on my motorbike. So um, it was a bit of a blow for a number of reasons because I was hoping to borrow some money off them. <laughs> Not having any money left. And they told you there's no way. <laughs> and they told me there's no way. By the time you grew up, son, get a job, sort yourself out, um, come, home, come home. Luckily, as much as anything else, um, the boat, the bike was arriving in America a couple of weeks later, so I had to go and get it. But but one of the things that made it possible for you, at least in your own mind anyway, was a girl you met that also wanted to go. Yes, I met a girl in Belfast who uh, wanted to go to Canada um, and was going to pay for the uh, for me to take her up to the west coast of America. So you're thinking there's your fuel covered and, and there's my fuel this, covered. it makes the trip. <laughs> and for the company as well. After driving down Africa on my own, driving up the West Coast of America with a with a girl in the back, seemed, seemed like a very pleasant idea. <laughs> well, that's what I'm so, saying. Ignorance is bliss, though. I mean, it's it's that thing again, that young, naive thought process, because I don't know if it's na- naive, but it's 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 so carefree, you know, that, that's not that's not enough money for you to do anything. That's just your fuel. But that yeah. was good enough for you. That's all you needed to know. You know, you're only thinking the next couple of weeks ahead. You're not thinking about a long term. Where, where am I going to be? What am I going to do when I grow up? At that stage, it's very much something else will happen. You know, mm-hmm. you don't. It was a good thing or a bad thing to to have that state of mind. Um, so yeah, so I arrived in Los Angeles with this girl, um, intending to drive up the West Coast. She was going to pay the way, get to Canada, and go go from there on. Um, 
Unfortunately, we picked the bike up. The uh, I, don't, I don't know if it had been par- parked on the boat outside or what, but the the clutch had completely seized together, so the clutch didn't work, wouldn't release. So no clutch. I just had to push the bike and it either went from neutral or into gear. So the only way I could drive it was by push starting it, pushing it, having the engine running, pushing it along, jumping on and kicking her into gear and then flicking up through the down through the gears once you were moving. But of course you couldn't do that with a pillion passenger in the back. So she wasn't very pleased whenever I had to tell her that you're on your own, I'm going to have to go off and get this motorbike fixed up. So I drove up to I had a friend up in Washington State in Seattle. Uh, I thought, well, let's get up there and I'll fix the bike up at his house. Um, so I had to drive up the whole West Coast of America with no clutch. <laughs> that was the only fly in the ointment, though, because when you first arrived, you tried to get your bike out of customs. They told you it's going to have to pass emissions and be safe deed, yeah, and, yeah. and you knew that wasn't going to work. No. No, I mean, they were America's pretty laid back in some things, but a lot of things are quite strict on. So they wanted all these emission tests and so on. So eventually... I was able to persuade them that by as long as I took the bike out of the country within four months that they would let me bring it in as a temporary import. Uh, it was only after that I realized, they said, well, where can I export it to? And the only place, of course, that you can drive to from America is Mexico. So that was where my next port of call was going to be. And not so much planning would have gone into deciding where I was going to go next. Yeah, because you're um, heading in the opposite direction of Mexico. Because I was heading into, yeah, well, I was going to Canada. Oh, well, actually, I have to go to Mexico. Okay, let's go to Canada first, and then we'll go to Mexico. <laughs> so <laughs> so did you give her a ride? Did you end up giving her a ride to where she wanted to go? No, I had to leave her in, uh, in Los Angeles, and she never spoke to me again. I can't imagine why. <laughs> girls, are so, girls are so difficult. <laughs> but, but you did you did ride to Canada. I did, yes. Um, I made it up to Seattle. We got uh, met my old school friend and got the bike fixed up eventually after in between a few too many beers. Um, I cut the clutch rebuilt and went up to Vancouver, met up uh, with a, an old friend in Vancouver and then lost my passport um, on the way out of Vancouver. So I had only like 50 bucks in my pocket to get to Ottawa to get to the the embassy to get a new passport. So I drove across Canada. Oh, hang on. You're jumping across this really quick because you, you went for, you, you, as you said, you lost your passport. You opened up your jacket or something like that as you're riding and, yeah. and and you went back and searched for it. But then you realized that without a passport, obviously you're really up the creek. So um, you've got to go to Ottawa, which is across the country, 3,500 uh, miles, uh, 5,000 kilometers, I guess, almost something yeah. like that from where you were. You've got to go there to get your passport, but you're still, you're still heading to Mexico. Yeah. The, one of the problems was I also lost my American Express, my traveler's checks with my passport. So I only had 50 bucks cash or something like that. So I couldn't take my time. I would like to spend more time driving across Canada. But I think it did. How many was it? 3,000 miles, did you say? three? I think it's, it's 3,500 miles, something like that. Around 5,000 yeah. kilometers. Yeah. So I did that in, I think, about five or six days, which isn't bad on a on a bike that's just driven down Africa. Yeah, it's a, um, and, and that's without any maintenance crossing the country. Without any maintenance at all, yeah. So uh, Guzzi is certainly starting to prove itself as a very commendable touring bike at that stage. In Ottawa, I had a friend who I'd traveled with in uh, in, Uganda, in, in Sudan, 
we got arrested on a, a precarious time on a train. We got arrested for carrying petrol in a train. That's back in Africa, and that, that's another Africa, great yeah. story. You, you end up riding from one station to another on the outside of the train. Yes, we, we were chased off. We had to run away from the police. And when we say police, these guys are sort of paramilitary type chancers with a police uniform on. Um, they wanted her petrol. They wanted her jerry cans. So um, we're stuck in the middle, stuck in this little desert town in the middle of nowhere. And this guy um, that was with you, he, he lives in Canada. He lives in Canada, yeah. So the two of us at the, the police station, we, we basically heard the train leaving and we ran for it. So we jumped onto the train as it was pulling out of the station, jumped onto the outside of the train, and the guys inside were so scared of the police that they wouldn't let us in. <laughs> so we ended up traveling the whole way to the next station, hanging onto the outside of the train. <laughs> and these, and these are thinking, guys that were, were friendly to you when you first got on the train. I mean, I know we're jumping around in the story here, but when you first yeah. got on the train, these people were really friendly with you, and they, they were your buddies. And all of a sudden, when they see you getting chased by the police and stuff, they want nothing to do with you. No. Well, it's such when you realize that the police in these places are pretty hardcore and you don't want to be friends. If, you're, if, if the friends, if the police fall out with you, then everybody's falling out with you. They don't want to be seen with you or they're going to get arrested. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we had to hang on to outside the train to the next station. And I remember my my grip was pretty solid. I couldn't move my, my knuckles for some time after that. <laughs> From holding on to the handle of From the holding on the train. That's so crazy. yeah, it was quite an eventual train trip. Um there's you know, the police were following us. The next train got derailed, so we had to uh get off one train onto the next train. Um it's it's kinda of hard to imagine what a train in these countries are like. They really are not much more than cattle wagons uh, with wooden benches in them. And the tracks were so basically the tracks were laid on sand instead of gravel, so you can imagine they're pretty wobbly. So it was quite an adventurous train trip. Um, the guy, Michelle, he, I had his address and he was going to university in Ottawa. So so I drove up to his address and waited for him. He wasn't there. And half an hour later, he'd walked up the road and saw me sitting there. And the last time he saw me sitting on the same motorbike was in the middle of uh, South Sudan. So it was a good... Uh, Good meeting. I suppose that's the other different thing in these days and, and those days is somebody's calling to see your phone. You make f- messages to so many different ways to contact people. But uh, 40 years ago, you just turned up to somebody's door, you know? Yeah, which you did a lot, didn't you? I mean, you have the, you yeah. know, there's different stories of you showing up. One, I think, was a, a Boy Scout leader or something. You show up and just bang on his door at, I think it was 10 o'clock at night and uh, present yourself and a girlfriend, I might add, that you'd picked up along yes, the way. Yes, I actually succeeded in getting a girl in the back of my motorbike at that stage. <laughs> Which you stole from her friends, but that's, that's another story. That's another. <laughs> yes. I was coming back from, from Miami. We arrived in St. Petersburg, and uh, this guy had been my scout leader in Belfast uh, years before, and he'd, he'd uh, gone to America. So I hadn't seen him for five years or spoken to him, Guys these days, I think in those days, were never very good at keeping in touch with old friends. Uh, so I just turned up at his door and gave him a bit of a shock. Um, guy called Richard Turnage. Funny enough, I have tried to track him down on Facebook and on LinkedIn and haven't been able to. So if anybody out there knows where Richard is, it'd be lovely to hear from him. Because he was there when you knock on his door, you you find he's he's got a wife and you're this anomaly that shows up from his past that his wife knows nothing about. 
Yeah. I mean, Richard hadn't seen me since I was probably about 15 or 16. He was a scholar. He was six or seven years older than me, I guess. So I turned up at his door, said, hi, Richard. Uh, how you doing? You got a bed for the night? And we spent about a week there just checking out, taking the bike apart and putting things together again and getting to know him again. So, yeah, it was a pretty cool experience. Now, we just mentioned you, you this girl that you picked up along the way that you stole from her friends. Her friends were very upset when, when she decided to <laughs> jump on the back of your bike because I think you'd only known them for a few days. She, she go, yeah. gets on the back of your bike, and, and it's a great story that goes with this, but um, you end up dumping her not long down the road. <laughs> well, I wouldn't have put it like that. <laughs> well, basically, she I'm, was cramping I'm not, your style. I'm not, coming out of this, I'm not coming out of this interview very well, am I? <laughs> well, I, I think you have to read the book to really get the full context of this, but but that's yeah. basically what happened. <laughs> basically, pretty much what happened is, yeah, we sort of met up, fell in lost her love or whatever in Miami, and she decided she wanted to give up her job and come along with me. So, yeah, it seemed like a good idea. So she jumped on the back of the bike, and we got as far as St. Petersburg, and I guess as much as anything else, I realized that um, for some reason I still wanted to do this on my own and doing it with somebody else is not what I wanted, um, which I always wonder why I decided to do that <laughs> 40 years later. <laughs> because she was a nurse as well and I did get quite sick after that. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's right. You certainly could have used her help, but things could have oh, yeah. turned out differently. But it is going back to the original sort of thing we were talking about is traveling on a motorbike. It is is a is a well it's a romantic notion or a, a feeling that you want to be on your own, you want to learn things on your own about your motorbike on your own and travel on your own. I felt very strongly that that's what I wanted to do. Uh to get to know myself and uh get myself in and out of situations I wanted to do on my own, I guess. As well as that, I didn't. I knew I was going to South America at that stage, and I was didn't really want the responsibility of having a, a girl to look after too, which is selfish of me, possibly, or maybe looking after her. I don't know. Um, but you know, I was thinking back. I knew there would be situations where having a girl with you is going to make you much more of a target than a guy on your own. You're much able to get in and out of problems with with. If you're on your own, mm-hmm. so yeah, she we parted company in St. Petersburg. She flew back, and you've never spoken to her again. <laughs> is it, there's a pattern emerging here. You know, I'm setting you up for that, <laughs> and are you surprised? <laughs> but but the thing you just mentioned again about about finding yourself, and, and I mean, like back then in that mindset, you know, when you're when you're 21, like what, what were you looking for? Well. Uh, at that stage, you don't even know what you're looking for. You know you're looking for something. You know, I suppose you're, you've had your education. You've brought up. You're old enough to leave your parents. You're setting off in the world without being too sort of dramatic or whatever. You're, you're trying to find out what it's all about. You know, what's what is this? What, what are we here for? What you're just trying to find out what what life's about. What yourself is about. I wanted to test myself. I wanted to find out what it was made of without your parents or like your friends. You, you, when you're you're brought up, everything happens because that's where you are. You don't get to choose who your parents are, where you're living, where you're born, what school you start off with. Really, it's all just the luck of life. So I wanted to be able to 
put myself in a position where I was on my own and totally fluid and whatever happened would be up to myself and nobody else. If you can understand, I suppose looking back, I was really trying to find out what I was, what I was made of, but um, uh, I guess that's what it, what's the, the line of a coming of age story is now that uh, I don't think we even knew what that was in those days, but really it was a, a reflecting on what, what your, what my ability was to look after myself and to make, make out of, make life to be what it is. Um, I wanted to be on my own. I wanted to test myself. Is part of that, that you, when you're finished it all, you want to be able to say, I did it by myself. Um, I don't think so. No. Um, I wasn't doing it for you would do that. To, at that stage, I realized that the whole bumming about where you were going and what you were doing was pretty much nonsense. You would have met a lot of people who were going around the world, which is what I wanted to do eventually, originally, which, and part of that is to be able to tell people, yeah, I went off around the world on my own, or I went to Tierra del Fuego or Alaska or wherever. But at that stage, I'd realized, well, actually, that's not what it's about. Um that's an awful lot of work just to tell people who really don't give a damn that you went to Cape Town or you went to Tierra del Fuego because most people aren't really interested. Mm-hmm. Um, I realized I wanted to to go for the experience. And I suppose what I learned is that what the meaning of life is, if you like, is that it's not about the destination. It is about the experience you have along the way and what happens to you. So where you're going is really irrelevant. It's it's how you get on and what sort of life you lead along the way. Yeah, I think at one point you you said something about that in in the book about um, you, you realized that um, although the destination, the goal was was what you had in mind, it was really the adventure was in between. It, it wasn't actually. Yeah. When you got there, you realized that what nothing was there. No, I remember when I got to Cape Town. You know, you're, you've been traveling for f- four or five months with this destination in your mind. I can't wait to get there. It's going to be great. I can't wait to you're going to do this, going to do that. And then you get there. You don't really know anybody there. You don't know anything about the place. And I ended up just sitting on the beachfront, looking at the sea, thinking, well, this is it. You know, it was actually the journey that, to get here was the fun bit. You know, it was just a destination at the end of the road. So, um, yeah. I think too many people travel with the destination in mind rather than enjoying the journey along the way. Well, you almost expect that when you get to Cape Town that the music comes up, you know, and and, yeah. and, and everything feels incredible and, and this whole thing has been worthwhile, but then you realize that it's just another place. It's just a place that you arbitrarily picked on a map for whatever reason, whether it's the end of the, the land there or whatever, it's, it's a place that you've picked and you ride into it. And like you said, it's sort of the same as others. Yeah. You know, you had one story about um, when you're in Mexico and, and you, you were a little bit paranoid about Mexico, I, I think, but um, a guy asked you if his son could sit on the bike. C- can you walk us through that story? Yeah, that was um, in a town called Veracruz, which was near where the first, uh, where Cortez actually landed. He was a bit of a traveler, I hadn't realized, but he actually landed with like five boats with his couple of hundred soldiers. And to make sure none of his soldiers ran off and deserted, he actually burnt his ships. Mm. So they were stuck in Mexico to make their own way. 
So we were staying in the town right that he that he lived in. And as you say, a guy came and said, Do you mind if my son lives sits on your motorbike? And I was thinking, sure. I'm thinking it would be a some some kid. And the guy was um he was a man, he was in his early twenties and he sat on his bike and big beamed a big smile. So when I got talking to dad, it turned out the um the guy had fallen off his motorbike the year before. He was driving over a railway bridge and a wee built on a trail bike, fallen off and landed on his head and suffered quite bad, bad brain damage. Um, and that was the first time that he'd really seen a motorbike. And ironically, they'd been keeping away from motorbikes because they thought that would have been depressing for him. But when I saw the motorbike, it just he just lit up and it actually started him communicating again. So it was quite an emotional time for them and for us. I stayed the night with them and the guy, you know, it just made it was lovely being able to make his day by by being there. But you were telling stories uh, about your adventures and, and that, yeah. that really connected. Yeah. And it made me realize again how lucky I'd been I'd driven across the desert, across I mean, across railway bridges, across the desert, where there was no, the ties as you call them, um, you get one foot on each rail sliding along with the bike bouncing from tie to tie and looking down between the ties. There's nothing but fresh air to the, the rocks below. Um, and this guy had done, he'd done it once and fallen off and wrecked himself. So mm-hmm. it made, did make me realize how lucky I'd been and how lucky, of, you know, for the, there by the grace of God, you get away with doing some of these things when other people don't. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, that was up until then. I'd been pretty paranoid about being in Mexico. Americans are all a bit paranoid about Mexicans, I think. <laughs> they were then. Um, there are all sorts of horror stories, which um, here, I mean, Mexico is a certainly a bit of a lawless place and to all accounts. But I found the people very friendly and uh, I didn't have any problems at all. As you did in the states, you said you found the, the the Americans to be some of the most hospitable people. Yeah, very much so. I think they, and certainly for travelers, they, I think American because it's a country that's been built by travelers. People travel there and they travel across the states, and um, I don't know about Canadians so much, but Americans always seem to me they'd be have a job in New York and get a job in in LA and think nothing about moving. Two three thousand miles away. Um, whereas in Ireland, if somebody asked you to move twenty miles away, you would be horrified. You know. Mm-hmm. You continued to head south through Mexico and beyond. At one point, Pablo Escobar, the drug lord, really helped you out. <laughs> Can you set that up? Well, don't put it that guy either. You're getting me a very bad reputation here. <laughs> I mean, that's what happened, right? I'm not. I'm not yeah, exaggerating yeah. here. <laughs> well, we got to Panama, or I got to Panama and uh, met up a stopped side of the road as a German guy on a motorbike, and we got chatting to him. And uh, we were both going south, and next thing, a couple of Americans pulled up on big shiny gold wings and invited us to stay in the the Panama Canal uh, Army Base. They had motorbike clubs, so we stayed there for a week um, trying to get across the Darien Gap as a big blockade between Panama and Colombia. Um, so we were going to look at different options to take a boat, take a plane, whatever. So we eventually got 
advised to go down to the little our our our, our port just out of town and these old Dakota DC threes and DC sixes were sitting there. So when the pilots offered to take us to Columbia for fifty dollars, I think, on this cargo plane. Uh, this is in the bar of the airport. The, the, <laughs> the airport bar pilot. you're sitting in. This is yeah. this is somebody you met. Well, it's not a, it's not a, it's an airfield rolling in airport. Yeah, I see. So we just went into this airfield and it was like a, going into a, a motorway cafe, I suppose, and trying to hitch a ride to the next town. So the next we hitched a ride on this uh, little DC six uh, propeller plane down to Median in Colombia. Um, and in our instance, we didn't think, well, why was this plane going back to <laughs> Colombia empty after <laughs> arriving in, in Panama, obviously full of goods. This is um, the drug, the heavy drug days, the heady drug days. The heavy, heavy drug days. Yeah. yeah. So we arrived at Medellin Airport. Um, the plane landed and I mean, there was no seats in this airplane. This is, there was five of us stuck in the cockpit with two, three seats. No cargo. Uh, no cargo apart from our two motorbikes. <laughs> so, uh, as I say, we didn't know anything about drugs in those days uh, as far as that was concerned. But we knew whenever we landed, this is not a place to hang around. There's guys running around with guns. The baggage handler, handlers have machine guns, you know. Um, so we got filled up with petrol from the airplane. They give us 100 octane uh, tank fills of gas and the and the bikes and we headed off out of town. Um, they filled you up with gas for free? They give you out gas for filled free? Filled us up with gas for free, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember how many. I mean, Abedian was the biggest export of cocaine in the 80s. Certainly that was the public ask bar would have been in its heyday. Yeah, not, not many um, airlines do that sort of thing for, for travelers. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you, know, you don't sort of hitch a ride in the bar with the, when the guys who were piling the beers in, flying back Six o'clock the next morning, you know. <laughs> that that bar, by the way, was was a Pablo Escobar bar, was it? It probably was. Yeah, it probably was. <laughs> you, you you just mentioned there you you didn't know about drugs back in those days, but there are numerous examples in this book of you knowing about certain things that you can smoke. And as a matter of fact, there was one example <laughs> one example of some magic mushrooms. I really am coming out of this experience this interview very badly. <laughs> there, there was the one incident with magic mushrooms and, and camping by a border. I'd love to hear that story. Yeah, well, that was. Um, we were in going from Ecuador to Peru, and we decided we'll stop off. It's never good to cross the border late at night, so we stopped off just before the border, pulled off the road, and camped. Um, we had been given some magic mushrooms by some other hitchhikers or something like that. So we brewed up these magic mushrooms, not knowing what they were, uh, and they were pretty disgusting, but big. 21, we decided we'd persevere <laughs> and sat there waiting for something to happen. And all of a sudden we heard this, we are in a bit of a copse, copse of a small wood, and we heard this noise behind us. And the next thing, these soldiers all jumped out. And this is, um, this is after you've eaten the magic mushrooms. After we've eaten the mushrooms. So it's really it's a very strange experience whenever you're sitting there having a nice relaxing mute, listening to some dark side of the moon or something and these soldiers <laughs> jump out. <laughs> so they uh, started shouting at us and someone was shouting at us to stand up. The others were shouting at us to sit down. But I do remember that was the whole, they never really con 
It's concerned me too much. I thought it was something of a pantomime or whatever it was. I was totally relaxed about it all anyway. <laughs> and once they realized, this, hang on, the sorry, this isn't because of your cool travel demeanor. This has to no, be the magic mushrooms. <laughs> So at one stage, the guys were all standing around us in a circle and we were in the middle and they were all pointing their guns at us. And I started laughing. I said, you know, guys, if you start shooting us, everybody's going to die. <laughs> because they're all pointing their guns at each other. <laughs> so uh, luckily the officer appeared and told us, sent us off. And it turned out we were at a very uh, sort of sensitive camping area. We were right beside an army base and uh, very sensitive place between uh, Ecuador and Peru. And it turned out about three weeks later, there was bombing raids that the actual war, the actual war broke out between the two countries over this disputed piece of territory. Mm-hmm. So as I said, I don't like to think that we had anything to do with starting off. But, uh, <laughs> with starting uh, the dispute. <laughs> <laughs> You you end. Yeah. I, I think you drank. Um, you you figure you drank some bad water in Nicaragua, which started to affect you, and it sort of got worse as as you went down further south. It did. Well, I, I actually got around about the time in South America. I got. Uh, I actually got uh, what I learned later learned to be some sort of hepatitis. Uh, when I got to Peru, it was up in Machu Picchu, and I got hit hard. I couldn't get out of bed. I really got hammered. One of the problems was that I was running on a very, very, the whole trip was fairly tight uh, with money. And I reckoned I would get to Buenos Aires or uh, uh, Rio all right with what money I had if nothing went wrong. But I had no, uh, no flash cash for any problems. So it was obviously difficult, constant worry then. If anything should go wrong with a motorbike, I wouldn't be able to afford to fix it or and then go wrong with myself, which obviously it did then. I couldn't get out of bed for two weeks. And my money was started disappearing too fast without moving. So um, I was able to make it to La Paz eventually um, to get some money shipped over from from home. Um, unfortunately, you know, the middle of the mountains in Peru is about the last place you want to be with a, a motor de Le Mans to try and go anywhere because if you unless you can drive it, you can't ship it anywhere. The, the airlines were not interested in flying bikes that got into a stage. You mean because you're thinking of going home from there? Yeah. Right. I suppose it, uh, you, by the time I got to South America, I really was getting burnt out. I'd been away for nearly a year and a half traveling um, on, as I say, on a shoestring, um, getting ill, bike was hammered. Um, is it the money that, that is the stress? The money, looking back, the money was the main stress. Yeah, because as you know, if you have money, you can really do anything. You know, if you if you if you have enough money, you can stay in a nice hotel, five star hotel. You can fly home. You can do what you like. But and these days, if you run out of money, you just go to uh, uh, well, you have your credit card or your send a like You get some money wired over to you. But um, I wasn't able to do that. I was able to send a telex home to try and get some money shipped over, but the money never arrived. Um, so luckily I was able to find a, a, a British guy who worked in the embassy who I was able to trans- get my parents to transfer some money to his home account in the UK, and then he gave me money. Well, well that's that's he found you, didn't he? Because that's another one of those there's serendipity things. He actually found you because you already went to the embassy and got turned away. 
Why the embassy got turned away? They weren't really interested in looking after people. You shouldn't have been there. No, you should have been. Shouldn't have been there in the first place. You've got yourself into trouble. You can get out of it, your, out of it yourself. Mm-hmm. Type of attitude. Um, so then I went to the bank, and the bank weren't interested. Um, Telexed home, couldn't get any money. So it was really down to my last ten or ten or twenty bucks. Um, and I met this guy just in the street who was able to. Again, wherever you went, having a a big motorbike is always, as you say, a great uh, opening line. If you like, people are very emotive about motorbikes. I think you know the guys either love them or hate them. Most people like them. They, uh, something unusual like a motorguzzi, they'll come and talk to you. So no matter where you were, it's always find it's always a great opening way to get to know the local population. Uh, so in that instance, the guy came chatted to me, saw the British number plate and came over and talked to me. was able to, through that, get money sent over to get to continue on my way. Um, in Peru, another sort of coincidence, if you like, was that and actually picture when I was feeling very ill, I met a crowd of Argentinians, took a few photographs, chatted away with these kids, uh, thought no more about it. Um because I didn't think it was actually going to Argentina at that stage. I wanted to go to Rio for the for the Mardi Gras. Uh, but whenever I got ill, I realized there was no mood for, for going to a party. So I got on the train, got to Argentina, got to Buenos Aires. I was so tired when I got to Buenos Aires. I got the bike off the train and uh, parked it up in the station, the train station, and fell asleep on the bench. Because you're sick. You're, you're really sick at this point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was five or six hours. You wanted to go to sleep again. You just couldn't, couldn't stay awake. So tired, so drained. Any, any, any exercise, any, anything at all would have wiped me out. Um, so it's really at the end of the road, mentally and physically. Um, I fell asleep on the bench in the train station in Buenos Aires. Now, Buenos Aires is a huge city. I think it's like ten million people. Uh, but what happened was this girl that we got talking to in Cusco and in Machu Picchu had shown her friends her photographs the night before. And I was in one of her photographs and she talked to the guys, these are an Amer- or a British guy on a, on a motorbike. One of the girls who was at the party walked past and saw my motorbike sitting there and rang her and said, uh, guy with a GB plate sitting in the in the station here. wonder if it's the same guy. And she came down and woke me up and uh, that was Maria who we met about two months before that in Machu Picchu. Um, so she took me home, stayed with her, stayed with her parents and organized for the bike to be shipped home. Got her mother's cooking. All of a sudden you go from being at the depths of practically despair of having no energy, no, not knowing anybody to being brought into somebody's house and having everything looked after for you. Mm. And again, luck, whatever it is, it's, um, you know, who knows why these coincidences or whatever they are happen. You never know how it's going to pay off. I mean, you, 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 yeah. you talk with somebody, you're social, you're, you make a, a momentary friend and then it ends up being sort of a lifesaver for you in the end. Well, that's right. I mean, you could call it luck, but in the other way you look at it, well, I was able to, even though it wasn't well, to make enough of an impression with these guys that 
they took her pictures, got chatting to them and made of whatever memorable impression that whenever they saw somebody on a motorbike, that was enough to, to jog her memory and, and get them to come down to the station and, and meet us, you know, so it was a, like one, I really, that's really one in a million coincidence. Mm-hmm. When you return home, you, you're like a new Chris Donaldson, you know, you, you've done all this traveling, you've become, you, you've, you have changes, even though I know you said at the, you, at the time you couldn't identify them really, but you felt like you were a different person inside. You really had trouble with that, didn't you? When you, when you arrived back home, you, you grappled with that, those feelings and what to do. Yeah, I did find it very difficult to fit into normal life again after you've been sort of away for a lot of time and not many experiences, so exciting, dangerous, surreal experiences going on. It's very difficult to fit into this sort of normal nine to five working life again. Um, I'm sure a lot of travelers have this, have the same thing and some people, it depends how you cope with it. I had to make a definite decision that I'm really going to have to forget about this whole traveling bit. And I put the motorbike away and I guess I forgot about the story of writing the book and just got my head down, bought a house and had to make a very definite positive decision to set my mind to going to work and being a, a normal guy again, if you like. Um, but I have met and talked to other people who have not been able to make that sort of, have never been able to get out of the, the traveling mentality and, I've continued on. Yeah, some of them um, are still still on the road <laughs> for that some matter. They're still on the road, you know, so they've never been able to settle down. I mean, as if settling down is such a good thing, they've, they've made a positive decision not to do so and continued on the road. Uh, and it is, it's quite an addictive lifestyle for many reasons like that, you know. Did it make you feel unfaithful in a way by, by turning your back on what had happened and, and moving on to a normal life? Well, not really, because it just didn't make that decision that I, I'm going to have to do this. I'm going to have to get, you know, I didn't want this to continue on the road any longer. So I knew that was a past which was finished for that stage. I wanted to, to move forward. So I just had to set my mind on what I was going to do and buy a house. So find buying a house, having something that wasn't moving was a great help uh, to fix up an old, old house. Um and set my mind on a target that was going to 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 change direction. So I was able to do it, uh, and I think traveling probably gave me that ability to do that too. Because every country you go into, you're changing direction as such. Different different things are happening, and you are having to think on your feet and change from one day to the other. So I was able to use those experiences that I've learned in normal life to. Um, to, to 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 not settle down, but to to live in a in a fixed fixed community, fixed abode. I still travelled a lot, and I still did some very silly things and airplanes and different things, which are other stories. So I was able to get my kicks, I suppose, in other directions. But when you talk about having trouble getting over it and having to make a conscious decision at one point to say, okay, that's it. I'm going to, you know, go to a normal life. It sounds like you're sort of getting over an affliction or something, you know, is some disease that you've caught. Well, it probably is a bit dug out, to be honest. You know, you're not just a disease, but a state of mind. Um, it is definitely a state of mind. If you're a traveler, you have a traveling state of mind. You're a rolling stone. You never settled, never fixed, never stopped one place. 
And as you say, people are like that. I didn't particularly want to do that anymore because I, I was a bit burnt out by by moving. I, I did want to stay in one place and settle down to a certain extent in one place and learn about that place. Uh, it happened to be Belfast because I had no money left and I had a job there. Um, and certainly in the eighties, it was a good. If you know money, it's good to have it. Was good to have a job. There weren't the opportunities to go elsewhere. So, um, and being it because it was a family business, I was able to to, to make my own decisions as, as to work my way up to to make my own decisions and to setting my own course. But it certainly it is a bit of a an affliction to have if you can't fit in with with normal life as such because you are then an outsider. I always did find whenever you start telling people about journeys like very often in South America or middle of Africa or wherever it is, you can sort of see their eyes glazing over and thinking, what is this guy on about, you know? Because they really cannot comprehend the situation you were in or or relate to it in any way. If you started talking to them about going to New York or Paris or something like that, they'd be much more interested because they can understand what you're talking about. Mm. But if you're talking about hanging on to a railway carriage driving through Sudan, you know people people can't they just can't comprehend what on earth you were doing. So this amazing adventure becomes a footnote. Yeah, you know. So you nearly you talk about what you were doing last weekend, rather than what you were doing last year, what you were doing last weekend down in you know down in the local pub rather than what you were doing last year last, last year in Central America. Um, as I say, people, they, they, it's, it's quite understandable in a way. They, they just cannot relate to what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so they'll chat, they'll ask a few questions, but they, you can't really have a conversation with them about it because a conversation is two people talking and coming back with different ideas. Whereas if the other person doesn't know what you're talking about, it's it's not a conversation. It's a you know you're not getting any feedback. At this point now, in, in hindsight, living the years that you have since then, which has been quite a while, what that you uh, learned on that trip, or in the ways that it changed you, has affected your life as you move forward. I think it gave me a determination and a realization that. Uh, it's a bit of an old hand saying, but you can sort of do what you want if you try hard enough. Um, and I did come up against a lot of obstacles, a lot of closed borders, a lot of routes that you sh- I shouldn't have been able to cross, but I did. And it made me realize that, you know, different situations, if you try hard enough, if, if you don't accept no for an answer, uh, you can battle through. I had an experience... Um, 10 years ago when the credit crunch happened at the, the local bank, the RBS, who had a few misdemeanors in the, that's your side of the water as well, took all my properties off me and basically made me bankrupt um, for no fault of my own, just they were able to, to do it because of the paperwork. Um, I refused to accept that they were going to do that. I learned enough about law to self-litigate and I got all the properties back again. Oh, wow. Um, so you, oh, that's, a, that's it, a David and Goliath story. It does seem totally, you think, well, why am I talking about that when we're talking about motorbikes? But it was the lessons I learned on the motorbike, which would have 
given their strength and the determination to go on and succeed. So there definitely were life lessons to be learned. I think as a concept, many people will relate to what you're saying. Cause you know, you try hard and, and you know, you can get things done. You, I'm sure that many people have been told by their parents that you can do anything you set your mind to it. But there's one thing with knowing or understanding the concept and another, I think with living it the way you did, where you proved to yourself over and over and over that it's sort of like a bottomless pit of, of determination. Yeah, I mean, I think we're sort of brought up to believe if somebody says no to you, if a person in authority especially says no, that that means no and you shouldn't go against them. If a policeman says no, you can't do that, or a bank manager says no, you can't do that, or a lawyer, a judge, then you have to accept their their say-so. I think what I learned is that you actually don't have to accept that, that if you think you're right, you can be a right pen in the arse and continue on until you get what you want. And or not. I mean, very often you, you fail completely <laughs> as well. It's, it's ended in tears a few times. <laughs> but in that particular instance, the uh, yeah, I was able to the determination I learned was able to get me through. But even if it does, you know, end in tears, like you said, at least you know you actually gave it your all. Exactly. At least I mean, certainly with the bank experience, I spoke to lots of people who had similar things that happened to them from the banks and. They weren't prepared to put the time and the effort and the money because it obviously costs money to take a bank to court. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I end up spending my pension doing it and people aren't prepared to take that risk. Whereas um, risk, I'm not a particularly risk adverse person probably, I guess, as you might have guessed. One other thing you have was um, you said that you knew something had profoundly changed you. And I think this is probably when you are in South America, but you didn't know what. What change? I don't think I still know what changed, to be honest. Wow, you went all that way. You spent all that time <laughs> and you still didn't figure it out. You didn't tell me you were going to ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> um, what did change? Well, I say just my perspective on life changed, um, that I was always more... And I think Western society does breed us to look for the achievement, which is passing an exam, getting a pay rise, getting a promotion, whatever it is, getting married, getting somewhere, getting some something to happen in your life, what it is, your your ambition. Whereas actually, as we, as we said, it's you know, we're, we're, we arrive in the world on our own, we leave on our own, and it's really what happens in the middle that we that we enjoy and make the most of. And I realize yeah. it's important to do that. And whether that's a follow that in the rest of my life, I probably have to an extent. I've done different things rather than sticking at one thing to try and be the best, the best, the best at that. I have tried different um, professions and have enjoyed them in different, in different locations. And I think variety is a lot to be said for it, you know? Because you only get one shot, right? I mean, you know, and then in the end, when you're gone, who really cares? I mean, exactly. how long are you going to be remembered? Unless you're Picasso. <laughs> you haven't seen my paintings. <laughs> I don't think you're going to be remembered that long. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, and that's about the size of it. We really are. We're here. We're not here for a long time. We're here for a, a good time, as I say. But I did really, what I got to know, what I learned was it's, it is a journey. And, um, 
you know, a journey has a life of its own. You have a an end point. You have a start on an end, and it's what happens in the middle. It makes the journey. Mm-hmm. If you want to go and see Cape Town for the sake of being Cape Town, we'll take a take a plane. If you want to have a comfortable ride, take a car. If you want to sleep well, take a caravan. But if you want to have a nice journey, if you want to an excitement, if you want to have a journey, meet people uh, on along the way, take a motorbike. I think that's very profound what you just said, and I, and I think you do know the answer. You know, you you just don't realize it, and and, and I think you yeah. just you just spelled it out there. Yeah. Donaldson. The book is a great read. It's called Going the Wrong Way by Chris Donaldson. His website is chrisdonaldson.world. And we have that link in the show notes for this episode uh, on Adventure Rider Radio. In the show notes as well are photos from Chris's adventure. And keep in mind, they're from 40 years ago. So they're different from what you're seeing today posted on social media, etc. Have a look at the show notes uh, at our website. And, and by the way, Chris is also looking for a publisher in North America. And he has an audio version for this book. Drop by our website, look at the show notes for this episode. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer Elizabeth Martin and to you the listener thank you very much for being a part of this don't forget we have a support system which we hope you look at AdventureRiderRadio.com, click on support it's what helps the show and what makes it work. It's supposed to be a model of advertising and listener support. Drop by, have a look anything $10 or more gets you a sticker sent back at you for your motorcycle, your pannier your toolbox, anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on our our wash show and speaking of our raw show that's the other show that we do it's a monthly you need to subscribe separately all on our website drop our website adventureriderradio.com now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can my name is jim martin thank you very much for listening i'll talk to you next week hi this is charlie borman and you're listening to adventure rider radio <laughs>